1: Hey, it's Heather, and I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid 16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the evensong service. If you choose to attend, it will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, EnglandCast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, EnglandCast.com slash tours. Thanks so much, and now to the show. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of the Renaissance English History Podcast, part of the Agora Podcast Network. I am your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm so thrilled that I was able to have a conversation with Allison Weir, earlier this month. But before we get into that, just a couple of bits of admin. First, the Agora podcast of the month this month is American Biography, which is the American story told through Americans stories. So it's a podcast all about biographies of people who had a lot to do with American history, but are often overlooked because they aren't the biggest names. So cabinet members, congressmen, things like that. So check that out. And also, I have put up show notes for this conversation with Alison Weir on englandcast.com. So you can go to englandcast.com and there are notes and links to all of the different books that she mentioned, upcoming books that she's working on, everything like that. And while you're at the website as well, you can sign up for my mailing list. Newsletter subscribers get access to extra mini casts as well as exclusive content, things like that. And it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. And I don't spam you and I'm not going to sell your email address or anything like that. So sign up for my mailing list and you get all kinds of fun, free content there as well. The video cast of Hannah and I in kadith fun things like that. All right. So without further ado, let me introduce Alison Weir. Alison Weir is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels, Innocent Traitor and the Lady Elizabeth and several historical biographies, including Mistress of the Monarchy, Queen Isabella, Henry VIII, Eleanor of Aquitaine, The Life of Elizabeth I, and The Six Wives of Henry VIII, which is the first history book or Tudor history book that I ever read. And I love it. She lives in Surrey in England with her husband and two children. The Renaissance English History Podcast welcomes Alison Weir. This is such a a thrill for me to be able to talk to you, and and I really do appreciate you taking the time. Um, So I'll, I'll jump right in, I guess, to the questions. And also some of these are from my listeners. I threw it out to my listeners asking them what kinds of questions they had for you as well. So one of the first questions you probably get asked a lot is that, your timing with with writing all of your books it, it really seems to you you kind of were on the zeitgeist with this whole tutor everything being so so popular. Why do you think that the tutors have become so popular and what do you think their appeal is to us today? It's
2: a big question, but first of all, this is this is a larger-than-life dynasty, and it's a dramatic story. And you've got these vivid royal characters that, for the first time in our history, are really fleshed out by individual source material. Uh, because this is an age of this, with the spread of literacy, with the development of printing, and also the, the development of diplomacy which comes to the fore in the Tudor period. And we've got so much more information. And Henry VIII's matrimonial activities, particularly his great matter, his attempt to divorce Catherine of Aragon, uh, became made the royal marriage a subject of legitimate public focus for virtually the first time. This was a sensational thing. And after that, it was open season. It's virtually a tabloid press at work here. So we've got a lot of information about the personal lives of monarchs. And we've also, it's also a period of great magnificence, and magnificence is a, it's a proper concept for the Renaissance, as you will know, because it, what, if you had it, you flaunted it. And that, 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 they were the trappings of power and authority and majesty. And so we've got the remains. We've got a good visual record for this period. The remains of wonderful palaces, um, uh, wonderful artifacts, art, paintings, portraits in particular for England. Um, costume is, is magnificent at this period. And we also have portraits coming into, you know, coming into their own with Lucas Horenboe. Hans Holbein is, is the greatest artist of the period. And we're seeing really the royal faces of England for the first time properly. And I think this, all this, this visual record, this written record, combined with the dramatic events, I mean, you can't make this period up. You're talking about a king with six wives; he beheads two, divorces three, and, and a 16-year-old girl who becomes queen, Lady Jane Grey, reigns for nine days and is beheaded. It, that, that's the stuff of drama. 300 martyrs burned under Mary Tudor. It is great personal um, tragedy driving through because of problems with the succession. And Elizabeth, um, you know, this is an age, in it starts off as an age where female monarchs are seen as a no-no, complete no-no, women are not supposed to wield dominion over men, and it ends with the most successful monarch ever to reign in England, Elizabeth I, who comes to a bankrupt kingdom, and is still there 45 years later, having emerged triumphant over the Armada. Mm.
1: Yeah, there's, and even Elizabeth, you talked about the the martyrs under Mary, and then with Elizabeth, with the Catholics, also because of the concern with yes. the succession and Mary, Queen of Absolutely. Scots.
2: You've yeah. got the religious story as well, so yes, it's, it's, it's a dramatic period full of amazing stories. Mm.
1: And since you first began your research in the sixties <laughs> and seventies, uh, how, how, or I guess a little later, how do you think the the interpretation of, of women, particularly, it's something mm. I'm very interested in. How mm. how this interpretation of women has changed. Even in this past century, even in the last four or five decades um you know the the idea that um these women wouldn't have played much of a part in public policy to then swinging that the women were all in charge of public you know had wielded all this influence over henry and and um and then kind of i don't know what how do you think the interpretations of women have have changed during this time period
2: vastly vastly, some of the women I have actually published biographies about are um uh, um would never have got a biography, would have merited a footnote when I started out researching. There were biographies of women. Um, they weren't considered very important. Um, because it is, it is true, David Starkey is, is right. Most European history has been made by middle-class white males. But the thing is, I mean I think women's histories are interesting in their own right and they should be retrieved. Now we're perhaps overstating the case. Take Anne Boleyn, for example. When I started, uh, most historians, I might add male, would have said were saying things like, Anne Boleyn couldn't was not the cause of the Reformation. You know, she couldn't have been instrumental in it. Now you'll have an historian like Dan McCulloch saying Anne Boleyn is the chief cause of the Reformation which I wouldn't quite agree with, but I think that's slightly overstating in the case. And and because there have been such a focus on women's histories, and rightly too, in the last decade and more, um, to which I've contributed. Mm -hmm. Um, We're probably overstating the case. Women seem to assume more importance than they did. But I think their histories are interesting in their own right and should be retrieved.
1: Absolutely. And then it's interesting that so much of your Tudor writing that As you get later into Elizabeth's time, there's sources, but then you also write about these medieval women like Eleanor of Aquitaine and Catherine Swinford. And how is how is that process different for you?
2: It's very different because you're talking about piecing together fragments of information to make a cohesive life. And that's, a, that's the challenge of all medieval biography, even of kings. But for women, you can imagine, it, it's, it's far more complex because there just isn't the source material. A lot of it is biased, a lot of it comes from monkish chroniclers and um, you know, you know, ecclesiastical sources. And they're not going to look very favourably on someone like Eleanor of Aquitaine, who led a very colourful life. So you have to get, I mean, you have bias in the Judah period as well. You're Protestant, Catholic, that kind of thing. You know, and you have a nationalistic bias, too. But and, and and you have to see how close people are to events. But with medieval biography, particularly Catherine Swinford, I mean, there's there's very little visual evidence of her everyday life. There's not one letter. There's not
1: one quote. You have to write a <laughs> biography. Quite a lot yeah, of so you just have to take her. <laughs> there is information but it's what yeah the, so that's what, what I ask you just take like the what you can get to corroborate the the different chronicles and then piece together something out of that
2: yeah you do you do absolutely and some something that comes from boring financial records you know which grants to her which probably if you get a flurry, a flurry of grants every couple of years something like that it suggests the birth of her bastard children by by John of Gaunt you know that kind of thing sometimes you and and, and it, sometimes you get if you look at the movements of other people close to the close to your subject you'll get something from them I found that something quite mm. startling about Amberlin by doing can you, just that can
1: you ta- no I guess that's a secret huh but it's we need to novel. wait yeah
2: <laughs> it is Yeah, it is but it, it'll, be, it'll be next year, <laughs> okay. it'll be next year.
1: Well, yeah you know okay. I'm not allowed well, there, there's a teaser if I've ever heard one <laughs>
2: Yes, but you wouldn't. I mean, you—it was following a line of research no one else has ever followed for a period in the life of which there isn't very much information, and um, it's—and—and it's—it's actually you know looking at the the act the movements of people all around her, and that throws light on what's happening to your subject.
1: So, how for you yourself after twenty-one books, something like that? How is 23. twenty-three? Okay, sorry. <laughs> 23 books. How has your opinion of, of these characters of these people? How has that deepened your relationship with them and, and your opinions of them? Do you? Are you still learning new? I You're still learning new things about Anne Boleyn because you're researching it. But, but yeah. tell me a little bit about like, how you felt about them when you first started and, and how your relationship with them has changed?
2: I start. I first started, My my interest was born when I read it at fourteen years old. When I read a, a a very trashy historical novel, I would see it now um, <laughs> about Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. And and I'd I'd, I'd sort of had brushes with Tudor history before, and was so, talked so badly at my school. I had the exercise books to show they taught me, but oh, um, I can't remember. It. it was so dull. Yeah. <laughs> How can you make the Tudors dull? Right. <laughs> but, it takes um, a talent. Yeah, exactly. But. Um, no, I mean, I started off with a very romanticized view. And yet her, is in the broadest sense, Anne Boleyn's story is a very romantic one in the way it would have been seen in the romantic era of literature. But, it's, um, but over the, since coming to research her, I've ta- I don't feel so sympathetic towards her. And the Anne Boleyn you see um, in the media and on the internet, on all the bloggers' pages and everything, is not the Anne Boleyn. If you really look at the sources, who you know who we are seeing in those sources, um, she's become a celebrity superstar and that's overlaid everything. A few years ago, you would do an image search for portraits of Anne Boleyn. Now you get Natalie Dormer and Natalie Portman from mm-hmm. the films and the Tudors.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
2: So, so this, is, this is what a lot, of people, a lot of people fantasize. A lot of people really do romanticize the subject in the modern way. And they need to go back to the sources and look. And I have to say, it's not easy to make her a sympathetic subject for a, a novel. It's not. You can see why she behaves the way she does, but I think some of it is to do with character. She came from a very ambitious family. But you have to admire her for her courage. And, and people by default see her as a feminist before her time. And I was, until quite recently, um, I, 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 I myself would have said that, that's, a, that's a very wrong way to look at historical character. But actually, there was, and my good friend, the historian Sarah Griswood Sarah just alerted me to this. She said, well, she said there actually was a feminist movement in Europe. When Anne was there and Anne was was involved, she actually served two of the great movers and shakers in that movement. And so, yes, she would have, she certainly imbibed ideas that would have been seen as radical in England and we would see as feminist. So that enabled me to portray her as a very modern character. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I'm interested in this feminist movement. Who was it? The, the well, Margaret of Austria? Margaret of Austria, Margaret of Navarre, yeah, yeah. as she later became. She yeah. wasn't called
2: Margaret of Navarre when Anne Boleyn knew her. But yes, I mean, she later had to backtrack furiously on her views. But, um, uh, but when her brother, the King Francis, took more of a hard line because her views were linked to um, religious reform as well. Uh, and there again, Anne Boleyn comes in. So these are early influences. And this is a very, you know, this is crucial, but it's going back. It's the culture she would have imbibed when she was over on the continent. The works of Christine de Pizar, uh, a, femi- a, w- a women's writer, a feminist writer in the early 15th century. Of course, they wouldn't have used the word feminist, but we—but I certainly think it's legitimate looking at these sources in this context. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow! That... So it, it does afford us a different view of her. You can see where she's coming from. She is the first really modern queen of England.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Catherine of Aragon is the last true medieval queen of England. Anne Boleyn throws all that aside. You can see why she was controversial.
1: Sure, sure. Wow. So okay, let me move on here to my next question. With your writing process, because you write both nonfiction and fiction, w- what's the difference with, with that for you? How does your research differ? And what's the experience like one versus the other?
2: Well, obviously, there's much more of a discipline with writing nonfiction. You are constrained to, um, to, the, to the, the original source, contemporary source material and legitimate speculation what you, from what you can infer from that um, but writing fiction, I mean, most of my fiction books have been based on research I have already done for non Um, But I have done some extra research, I particularly, I mean, the, this, this new series of six novels on The Wives of Henry VIII. It was actually, the idea came to me because I, I published a biography of The Wives of Henry VIII in 91. And um, it's out of date now. I mean, a lot of research has been done since. I've done a lot of research since. And, um, I'm, I've, I've been re-researching and rewriting, actually rewriting it. It's going to be a different book. And my publishers wanted to publish it, but it's going to take me years with all the other books I have on contract. So I thought, I just had this idea. I had to come, I was coming up for a series of novels and thought I would really like to write six novels on the wives of Henry the Eighth. No one will take six novels though, but they did because they thought, yes, this is going to be a great series. So um, so I had this wonderful freedom. We go back to talking about interpreting research. I'm using new research for these novels. And of course, you do have a degree of freedom in the way you interpret that. But I, tr- I suppose that the historian in me, I do try to keep very close to the facts. And, and Although there might be some rather surprising threads in these novels, they are based on original source material. And and I think that what you, what you, what you fictionalise in a novel, in a historical novel, should be credible in the context of what is known about the subject. And so I don't think you can take too many liberties, because that sells short those who know very little about it and are coming to it fresh. And don't get me onto films. And, <laughs> and, but it also sells short those who know a lot about it. I mean, if I pick up a historical novel, I get to page two and think, oh, God, I haven't done any research.
1: Right. It kills it for you. Yeah. There was a book like that recently. I'm not going to name it, but it was set in the 1200s and the character went to even song service. And I just oh and it was like oh 10 God. pages into it. And after yeah. that, I was just like, I can't read this. Oh, no. <laughs> um, what do you read for fun? Oh,
2: no, now I read um, I, like, I like Peter James. I like thrillers. I like mod- I like anything supernatural. I like anything with a sort of uh, mysteries, anything like that. Mostly modern. I do read historical novels. I've got some very old favourites, and my favourite writer of all time is Nora Lofts. And I reread the year before last. I reread every single one of her sixty books. <laughs> she did historical novels. She also wrote modern novels, more modern for her time, and a lot of others other besides. A lot about American history, things you know. She she wrote she was she wrote some wonderful wonderful books, and I was instrumental in getting some of them reprinted. Oh
1: wow, Nora Loft. I'll put a link up.
2: Nora Lo- Nora Loft N O R A H L O F T S.
1: Yes, Nora Lofts. All right. And
2: people are now taking her seriously. She's been a subject of well, one or two theses, you know, PhD theses. And mm. You know, I think it's it's um it, it's she she wrote so beautifully, and I would love to write like that. Another influence was Hilda Lewis, another mid twentieth century historical novelist. Um, and some of her books were filmed. So were Nora Lofts. But the trouble is the films don't do them justice. If you saw the films, you wouldn't think much of the book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but that often happens.
1: Yeah, it was the mid. Yeah, the movies of the fifties didn't often do justice. To... But movies of today don't, no, don't. don't follow the book. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's true as well. Um, <clears throat> a couple questions that my listeners wanted to know was: um, What do you think Mary Queen of Scots's level of involvement in Darnley's murder was? And also, the casket letters. Do you think they're forgeries? Talk a little about your opinion. I think it's
2: obvious that they're forgeries. We know they're forgeries. I mean, there's so much internal evidence that shows that they are forgeries. And we've got to remember that that 75 percent of the evidence about Mary, Queen of Scots comes from her enemies. Right. Who who were on a mission and had a a great justification to save their own necks for portraying her as an adulteress and murderess. Um, her relations with Bothwell up to the. We can discount the casket letters because I think they're they're just no no good. No use as evidence because there's there's so many errors in them and so many misconceptions and some of them don't even relate to Bothwell. They relate to Mary's son James. Um, but if we discount those, there is no evidence, absolutely no evidence before Darnley's murder to link Mary romantically to Bothwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I mean, a lot of people say, well, she must have known because there were at least two groups of conspirators at Kirchhoffield on the night that Darnie was murdered. And but I mean, and so I have to say it's a cast of thousands in the suspect. It's most of the Scottish nobility <laughs> involved in this. Yeah. But hello. Um, yeah, how? Did, yes, she didn't know. No, not necessarily. She didn't. She, she might not have known. She could well not have known because. A few months earlier, Rizzio, her secretary, had been brutally murdered, almost in her presence, and most of the Scottish lords were involved in that, and she didn't know about it. It came as an absolute shock. Uh, She was in a state of physical and mental collapse. There's plenty of evidence for that after Darnley's murder. She'd been through a hell of a lot in in her reign. She'd been very ill the previous October, and even her contemporaries were saying it was due to stress she vomited 60 times in one day.
1: She went into a very bad situation.
2: She did went to go into a very bad situation. The problem was, because of her physical and mental state, she suffered in inertia. She didn't do anything. She kept saying she would do something to bring Downey's murderers to justice. But the whole point was that, I mean, there were, there were rumors that it was Bothwell, and Bothwell was certainly there, uh, but it wasn't Bothwell who killed Darnley, But people thought he did, and, of course, he intended to. He intended to. he was the one who laid the explosion. And have the house undermined, we know that there's plenty of evidence about that. No it was people far closer to the center of government. it was actually Darnley's own kinsman the Douglases who murdered him mm. and but so Mary could not have been involved in that she certainly she shouldn't have been involved with that but I mean, I think there was a sop to her conscience because on um, the previous December, two months before, she'd been at a conference at Crave Castle, and um, the Scottish Lords had asked, they discussed with her what to do with Darnley. And in the end, they just said, well, don't worry. She said, they said, it will all be dealt with and you won't have to worry sort of thing. And she said, well, nothing must be done against my Queen Honour or my conscience. I haven't, I haven't used her words exactly, but that's what she said. And I think that was a sop to her conscience because I think, it must have been obvious they realised divorce wasn't an option. Um, it, you know, well, How else could they, get, could they get rid of this man who was plotting against her and being a total general nuisance and very vicious to her as well? Um, to be honest, I think if I'd been married to Darnley, I'd have killed him. Right, <laughs> <it? laughs> yeah. But I mean, afterwards, I mean, afterwards with Bothwell, um, Bothwell suddenly comes into his own. He's one of these men, I'm thinking, who power corrupts, and, and we see that very quickly. Beforehand, you see him as a, quite an upright man. He'd been the only one of the Scottish lords who'd not taken bribes from the English. And he he comes into his own, and he, he treats her virtually as his prisoner. He kidnaps her, carries her off to his a big stronghold at Dunbar and rapes her. She becomes pregnant from that. We know he raped her, looking at the dates. Uh, Well, some said it was with her her consent. And when she tried to send out, she didn't seem to do very much to try and escape. And people said it was with her collusion. But the whole point was, when he came back to Edinburgh with her and leading her horse by the bridle, which is a symbol of captivity um she she married him she was very very unhappy she was crying a lot it looks as if he forced her into a situation that she couldn't get out of he'd asked to marry her before he'd even got the lords to sign a bond supporting it and she'd refused i think he forced her yeah yeah i think i mean you're innocent until you're proved guilty there isn't the evidence to prove mary queen of scots guilty circumstantially you can make a case you can make a case for all sorts of things but there just isn't the evidence mm-hmm. so that's where i stand Still. Thank you but but I think I could you know if anything came to light I wrote, I wrote a third of that book thinking she was having done all the research thinking she would be guilty, she was guilty, and I had to come right the way around to the other point of view. Interesting,
1: interesting. Mm-hmm. Someone wanted to know, do you ever or do you ever plan to do research? And it's probably difficult with sources, as I as I read this here with into the, the very poorest people in England, would in Renaissance England, would you consider writing fiction or nonfiction about their daily lives? No, it's not my
2: chief interest. Yeah. No, no. Okay. No, it's not. Yeah. I'm interested in people who live in the public focus. I mean, for for whom there are a lot of, I mean, you know, it's very difficult. And also such books do not sell. Yeah, I can imagine. That's the problem. Um, you know, you take any one of I mean, publishers now, they're, they're nervous, it's, it's a difficult world, you know, and it's, uh, they want big subjects. They want subjects that people are really going to want to read about. And it's, I think you're going to find it far more interesting to read about a queen who's beheaded than someone who's tolling away in, a, in the, the field. Soil. Yeah, and
1: whose the harvest <laughs> failed and not that so I'd, they starve.
2: I feel sorry for them, <laughs> right. but you know, it's just not going to have that interest.
1: Yeah, just the same as today, you don't have like magazines publishing stories, you've got magazines publishing stories about celebrities, not your average person working at their nine to five job or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what do you uh, think caused Amy Robsart's death? I
2: think it, I don't think it was Robert Dudley Mm
1: -hmm.
2: because I think he was patently shocked. And I certainly don't think Elizabeth was behind it because um, Elizabeth was horrified to find that her lover was actually a free man and might want to marry her Mm -hmm. because Elizabeth avoided all attempts to marry as we all know. But, um, it could well have been, as Chris Gidmore suggested, a friend of Leicester's, who we'll call him, Robert Dudley, who who um, who, who had done it on his behalf, not on his, for him, without his knowledge. Yeah. But I also think that the theory that William Cecil was behind it, um, and there again we've only got circumstantial evidence. But who benefited most? Right. William Cecil mm. and England. Yeah. Because Elizabeth was on a headlong course to marry this man, or so Cecil would have seen it, and Cecil himself was wise gave her wise counsel. He'd been a supporter for a long time. He was her chief set. He was her Secretary of State. She called him the wisest count, the most honest counsellor anyone had ever had, and she she relied on him. But he went away to Edinburgh that summer when the summer of fifteen sixty, when the affair with Dudley was becoming notorious and scandalous. Mm-hmm. And he negotiated a wonderful treaty, a really advantageous treaty to Elizabeth with the Scots. Mm-hmm. He came back and found he was out of favour. She wasn't. She was ungrateful. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to know him. And Dudley's riding high. And you can see where Cecil's coming from. You know, God, you know, she's going to. She's going to ruin herself. She's going to ruin England right. by marrying this man. He's already married. It's going to cause a scandal. Whatever her behaviour's causing a scandal. Mm-hmm. So to Cecil, the whole, the whole, the whole thrust would have been get rid of this man who's causing the scandal. His wife, um, Cecil, behaves uncharacteristically, openly with the Spanish ambassador, who's an absolute gossip, and the news would have been around Europe in ten minutes, basically, mm-hmm. because you know he's going he's to report it to everyone, all and sundry. He's not discreet. And he tells uh, Cecil, tells him that, that she's died, that um, they're giving out that Amy is dying. They actually say she had a malady in her breast. But she says she's not. They're plotting to murder her. And so and and that very weekend, two days later, that very weekend, um, Amy is um, Amy is found dead mm. with her neck broken. Right. Um, and she also, she wants to get everyone out of the house. It sounds as if she wants to clear the decks for someone coming to visit her.
1: Mm.
2: And of course, as soon as Amy has come to Elizabeth, Dudley is out of the door. She sends him to queue and he has to stay away from court pending the outcome of the inquest that does clear his name. And that, of course, was found by Chris Skidmore only, only a few years ago. Um, but it was misfiled in the wrong year. Oh, my goodness. And, um, yeah, and it showed that there was a blow, definite blows to the skull and that she had, you know, she she definitely had been, you know, I don't think they were caused, they were caused just by falling down the stairs. Right. Interesting. And so so, so what happens is as soon as Dudley's out the door at court Income Cecil, back in favor. Elizabeth's never going to marry Dudley because he's too tainted by scandal. They remain close, and it's still rumored that he will marry her. He still hopes it, but she never, ever does. Mm, mm-hmm. And she entertains him. And in the end, of course, Cecil gets on with Dudley. Dudley sort of mellows and matures and that. And they, they do become, they work together. They become even friends. They visit and that kind of thing. But I don't think that Dudley himself was a murderer. So many people try, you know accused him of poison because he was so unpopular mm. he was actually a man who had great great protestant convictions he was he was quite puritanical in his views he was he was he had a lot of um good qualities i feel, and he was very supportive of Elizabeth. Interesting. So that's that's my that's view, view on, that. on that. I think. I mean, we don't know for certain, but I just think that you know we could see the hand of Besalú.
1: Uh, I'm just thinking about his hand in the death of Mary Queen of Scots as well. So it, he doesn't seem like he would have hesitated if he saw that something was a threat yes. to the country. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, th- those are my questions. My my actually my last question. I live in Andalusia in Spain, and so will you ever do any kind of work on anyone Spanish? I would love to see your work on someone love- Spanish.
2: I- I actually proposed a novel called Daughters of Spain for the Daughters of Ferdinand and Isabella. Oh, wow. And um, my publishers, it. it was among ten that I proposed. I usually propose a selection of subjects to my publishers. And my publishers, um, they, they, they they didn't they, they chose other subjects. Uh-huh. And then, of course, Julia Fox published, you know, Sister Queens about Catherine and Juana. Yeah. And um, I, I'm fascinated by Juana the Man. Yes. But I don't speak Spanish, and the sources would be a real problem. It would be, yeah. So I have to be honest on that, you know, it would have been, I mean, it would have been an overview if I'd done four intertwined lives. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been an in inde You can't do it. But um, because the language is a problem for, with foreign subjects. But I'm fascinated by Spanish history right the way through, right up to the end of the 17th century.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: As soon as the Bourbons take over, now my interest wanes, but the, the Habsburgs are fascinating, they really are.
1: It's an interesting, interesting, interesting place. So a one of our in these novels, though. Oh, yeah, no, of course there is. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I can imagine. I'm excited. So you're the, the new novels that comes out in May of 2016, May of this year? Yes, it, is May. it
2: comes out here on 31st of May in
1: the Okay, okay, great. So we'll put links up to that on my website as well for listeners. So and uh, yeah, thank you so much. I really, I just, I can't thank you enough. I first no. read The Six Wives of Henry VIII, you know, 20 years ago, and, uh, and it made my my life so much richer for having this history. And um, I just can't thank you enough for taking your time out of your day with all your rewrites and everything. It's Very, very kind of you. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks a lot. My thanks again to Alison Weir for taking the time out of her schedule to talk to the Renaissance English History Podcast. And again, there are show notes with links to Nora Loft's books and the new novels by Alison Weir at englandcast.com. That's E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T.com. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.